Countdown sequences are his daily bread. He had you on the edge of your seat, sucked into the world he had constructed. He's one of the best editors in the world. How did someone who started as a runner, serving tea and sandwiches, work his way up to editing the biggest blockbusters like Top Gun Maverick and Mission Impossible? Eddie Hamilton knew he wanted to be making movies since he was eight years old. While studying psychology, he spent a minimum of four hours a day editing student films and TV projects. Eddie did his first three films pretty much for free and paid the bills by cutting promos at night for a comedy channel. Eddie shares his insights on the industry and AI, plus he breaks down two scenes from Top Gun Maverick for us. And guess what? There might be a countdown sequence. You know, starting on this close-up of the timer, clicking up to four, I think it goes up to four minutes, and it kind of flashes red and then goes up to four, is a very clear way of you of, of indicating to the audience that shit's not going in the right direction straight away. And um, when we originally put this scene together, we didn't have these close-ups on the screen. It's a great way of reseating the audience in the world of the mission, because they've just come out of... Uh, it's Maverick and Penny, you know, uh, in the Maverick sort of talking to Penny in her courtyard and saying, I don't know how to do this. And she's saying, you'll find a way. You'll find a way. And then we crossfade to this timer and we hear a cyclone talking. Captain Mitchell is no longer your instructor. And as of today, there are new mission parameters. Time to target is now four minutes. You'll be entering the valley level at reduced speed not to exceed 420 knots. When you're cutting these scenes, the reactions of the pilots, because there are so many characters in the room, you are trying to find the, the purest essence of their reactions so that you're connecting with them all. Um, but you have so little time because you're working with the, with the speech that Cyclone's giving. So, it, you know, and I had hours and hours of footage. All the shots of the jet here that you see are stolen from an, from another sequence where we had just dynamic shots of the jet that was left. And the biggest trouble we, we had was showing how Maverick starts the, uh, starts the timer because we didn't actually have a shot really that was him um, starting the timer. So uh, you'll see here also, we had this great shot of him doing this split S maneuver which actually you have to be very high up because then you dive down. So the continuity is all over the shot, but it's just very cool. And we wanted to get this split S shot in the movie somewhere. And it just was great fun to put it in here because it's very intense. We generated that graphic to indicate that the timer was starting because we didn't have anything on location. We just had uh, Tom flying in in the F-18 starting um the the canyon run but we wanted to tell the audience that the clock had started at a specific specific point so this is these exterior shots of the jets were actually done a lot uh, way before the interior shots so i had gone through and done loads of selects of exteriors and then this take of tom going through the canyon was um was the last take that they did they did about eight or nine takes and the last take on a friday uh, he went incredibly low and fast and, and way more G's and much faster and lower than he was supposed to go, really. Um, you can even see the shadow on the wall there so you can see how low it is. So because we had multiple cameras, wherever the, the, sh the action was not super exciting, I would cut to another angle to keep the, the, the horizon moving behind um, Maverick 
at all times. Um, and we wanted to show the progress on the graphical screen in the tack room. Um, so what's interesting, what we're about to see now is some of the very first stuff that was shot. So these images were in the first teaser trailer. Um, and these images here of the pop-up and the and the climb and the dive down was some of the very first stuff that Tom shot right at the beginning of the aerial photography to prove to the pilots that it was safe to do. He was doing it all on his own. So the canyon was shot right at the end and all the stuff here was shot right at the beginning. We're in his point of view here um, and we're, we, we've taught the audience about using the, the targeting system, but we know that normally someone else does it. And so it's very difficult for the pilot to do it. Interestingly, all the reactions on the pilots were pickups that we did because originally we didn't have great dynamic angles, heroic angles with push-ins. So we went back several months later into the set and picked up all the, all the coverage here, the, the, the angles of the pilots looking intensely. Um, and then it's a question of, you know, how do you end the scene? Do you go to Rooster? Then you go to Hangman going damn. Then you see Maverick and then you go to his friend Hondo realizing that Maverick's kind of dug his own grave. And then you end on that great shot of Cyclone. It's very satisfying seeing Cyclone as an antagonist to Maverick, um, having to confront the fact that he was wrong and that Mavericks proved that it can be done. And you end up with this shot where you think, wow, what, what's he going to do? One of the decisions that we made early on is to play the scene with very little score. We do have score, but it is a, it's a kind of bass rumble and, and these kind of uh, horns, which are swelling kind of heroic swells. But it doesn't have a pounding percussion or drive to it because the images themselves and the sound are exciting enough. And when we cut back to the tack room, there's that kind of sense of time passing. But we wanted to really embrace the sound design of this sequence. Tom was very keen that the audience understands that it is physically punishing to fly these jets at high speeds with very high Gs um, when you're doing these tight turns in a canyon. And so if you listen to the sound design, we can hear his breaths and efforts along with the sounds of the joystick. So it's very subjective. We're in his point of view and you feel really connected to the character at that point. And then whenever we're outside, we just go to town with the jets blasting past. There's some great afterburner sounds that I love. But the big challenge with all these is that these pieces are shot months and months apart. So I had some exterior shots of the canyon. I had these exterior shots of the flying low over the desert and then the pop up, the pull down. So initially when I was building the scene, I just did selects of all that stuff without any interior shots. So you really don't know what you're going to get. And then I was on the naval base when they filmed that. So every day I'd be looking at all the footage that would be coming in. And I remember when we saw that take of Tom doing the low level, it was clearly the best one because the higher you go, the less dangerous and the less exciting it is. And they had to go, you know, very, very low and very close to the canyon wall to make it this truly um, unique cinematic experience for the audience um it's like in mad max when you see the camera on a wide angle lens like two inches off the tarmac you know that's super exciting because the wide angle lens makes it look very fast 
Um, and the proximity to the road means there's a lot of ground rush, which is very exciting. It's the same in the air. You know, we want the wide angle lenses mounted to the camera, mounted to the, to the jets. And it's fairly wide over the shoulder, over the shoulder of the pilot. But when we're on a close up of a Maverick, we're on a much longer lens. So the background moves slower. So it's less dynamic and exciting. You can see I'm always trying to keep the horizon moving. So if it, if it's, if they're just flying straight and level, it becomes quite boring to watch very quickly. So we're always trying to make sure that we're cutting when the, the horizon is moving and the jet is banking left and right. Uh, and then we're using the graphics. The graphics are kind of the last ingredient because when we're filming that, it's just a black screen in the classroom. And so all the graphics are added afterwards. And we spend many, many months working on the clarity of the storytelling of the graphics so that you completely understand in a very short amount of time what the F-18 is doing, the progress of it, where it's coming out of the canyon, where it's doing the pop-up over the imaginary mountain and down. Then the music, the emotion of the music, the kind of intensity of the sense of awe that the young pilots have watching Maverick, given that, you know, they've all failed up to this point. And given where Rooster is at in, in his head, you know, in, in his antagonism with Maverick, um, and seeing his kind of respect and even having Hangman go damn at the end. Damn. That's a kind of payoff to all the setup that we've had of how these pilots have think he's a little bit over the hill and they don't really respect him and but we're doing it in such a short amount of time as well and the rhythms are obviously incredibly important to keep you absolutely riveted so that no shot outside outstays its welcome it was one of i'm going to say maybe one of the slightly easier sequences to put together because it's a single pilot in a single plane so it's a very linear story, whereas all the other ones, you've got multiple pilots, you've got people in the front, people in the back. You're cross-cutting between, you know, um, several pieces of action with pilots failing to do it and then pilots succeeding and pulling up. And, you know, and, and any dogfight is just incredibly difficult. But this one, um, you know, initially we did try temp music with a lot more um, percussion and drive. Um, I remember at some point, I tried using some of Hans Zimmer's score to Rush, which if you listen to that, some of the racing scenes are absolutely pulse pounding, but they're almost too much because the images and the sound design do enough on their own. And it would be a bit overwhelming to, to really pound the audience with that, which, you know, it was very effective when I tried it. But ultimately what we end up doing is taking all the temp score off and making sure that the sequence works with no sound at all. So every aerial sequence we made sure it worked just visually with no sound uh, so you you can even follow the story and the emotions of the characters based on how close you are and how the emotion you can read off their faces and i think that scene is a prime example if i played it to you with no sound even with no context you would probably still understand what is happening and and the emotion that we're creating based on the the reactions of the um, of the young pilots and how intense it is for Maverick in that cockpit can you talk about the scene where they're stealing F14 with Rooster uh this one is also fun so maybe you have some interesting stories one okay i love the music cue when Maverick's starting it up and Rooster's running around, pulling all the, you know, the chains off the top, you know, the, the missiles and, you know, doing the refueling and all that stuff. 
The music is so cool. And then when they get into the cockpit, also you're you're thinking as the audience member, are they actually going to do this? Are they going to have Maverick in the front and Rooster in the back like the original Top Gun with Maverick and Goose? And you just think, I couldn't love this film anymore. You know, you're basically going, this is the most awesome thing I've ever seen. And I remember even when I read the first draft of the script that I read, it had that scene in it. And I remember thinking, if we can pull this off, it will be monumentally crowd pleasing. And the the shots where the jet pulls out, you see the afterburners glow and then the jet pulls out and you see the gorgeous um, silhouette of the, you know, the F-14 Tomcat with those incredible wings. Um, you know, the top shot, the drone shot as it's coming around the corner. Um, that is great. But it did take us a long time to get the music right. And and that cue, I think, is so uplifting and exciting and um, full of promise. And it just gets your blood pumping in such a great way. And we're using the five-note danger zone motif. I don't know if you realize that, but it's going da, 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 da. Oh, my God. This thing is so old. And it's it's very subtly interwoven into the rest of the queue. But it is it's so well done. I love that queue. I, I think it's my favorite queue in the movie. My other favorite queue is the Dark Star build-up which I think is just an awesome, awesome cue. When Maverick's on the running machine and he's walking and he's getting in and all that, it's it's just so good. Um, but the interesting thing from a storytelling point of view is that we shot a lot more dialogue between Maverick and Rooster at the starter um, motor, you know, the, the big box at the side, which starts the F-14. And initially we had, we had Rooster thanking Maverick for you know, in, inviting him on the, you know, for, for inviting him on the mission with him and Maverick saying, thank you for saving my life and all that stuff. So everything that happened on the deck happened at that point because Tom Cruise and Joe Kaczynski thought that, and, and Chris McCrory thought that it might, you might be more invested in those two characters if they've kind of had a bromance and that hugged it out and made up and, and got over their conflict. So that when they get in the plane, you're really with them and you feel like they are, they're reunited as a team. And then when they go into the final dogfight, you're, it's, it's more emotional. But what we discovered is that it's actually less emotional because you want to save the resolution of the conflict until right at the end of the movie. And then it's when they, the more ordeal they've been through, the life and death survival and the fact that, you know, Maverick pulls up and he's saying, I'm sorry, Goose, I'm sorry. And you can see that Rooster is panicking and, they, you know, they, they haven't got the flares and they're going to die. It's it's more tragic, that ending, because they haven't apologized to each other. And they're still kind of, there's that grudging respect when he says, it's good to see you. And then it's good to see you too, when they push each other, each other over in the, you know, when Maverick pushes Rooster over in the snow. I love that moment because it, it, it's so kind of, relatable to two men who are at odds kind of grudgingly respecting each other at that point i love it so we ended up keeping the dialogue uh in the f8 in the f14 hangar much more minimal to basically the comedy of them of, of rooster and maverick running across the tarmac you know there's people over there right we've got to run we've got to run that kind of very light comedy and then them running into the hangar and then keeping it more on 
on point in terms of information about you've got to do this, you've got to do this, you've got to do this. And then Maverick getting up into the plane and and you just, you know, you're just very excited. The other thing is that the movie is about aerial dogfights. It's not about like caught behind enemy lines. So we had to get them back off the ground as quickly as possible. You know, the audience's tolerance for that kind of story would have drifted quite quickly if the rest of the movie had just been them sneaking around behind enemy lines and picking up guns and shooting their way out. Like people aren't buying a ticket to see that. Um, the other thing I'll tell you very quickly is that when they, they get in the F-14, they, they, they taxi out around the corner onto the taxiway and then they stop. And Rooster says, Oh, Maverick goes, uh, you know, he looks over and you realize that, you know, the, 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 the taxiway is, you know, it's all kind of burned up and the runway's blown up. And Rooster says, this runway's cratered, Mav. You know, how are we going to get this, uh, museum piece in the air? And, um, I remember they shot so many options for that tiny exchange. And then you see Maverick kind of making the decision to put, you know, why are the wings coming out, Mav, and all that stuff. And, and then he, he, um, he puts the throttle forward and you see the afterburners go up. And then he lets the brake off and Rooster's going, holy shit, in the back. All that stuff. I remember they shot about four hours of dailies of, of, of so many options of dialogue in there. So I remember the day I got all that footage and I was watching through four hours of footage of just them sat in the plane talking about the runway and making the decision to fly off. It was, I, I was like, what do I do? You know, wh where do I go with this? And in the end, I really simplified it. And actually finding that the simplicity of that idea, we did go and get a couple of pickups later, but the simplicity of really not having Maverick say anything and just seeing him thinking about what he's going to do, start, you know, taking the winds out, wings out and then enjoying Rooster reacting to that. Yeah, I remember spending the entire day doing that 20 seconds of them chatting and we refined it a bit, but we didn't refine it a huge amount. Um, but it's one of those things where you watch the film where you go, well, of course that was the right thing to do because it just works. But no, it was a gigantic puzzle of four hours of different line deliveries and figuring out, okay, what, are, what is the essence of the scene and what's the simplest way and the most economical and, and fun way of doing this where we can bounce off Miles Teller's great reactions in the back and Maverick's intensity in the front of the fact that he's going to try and take off on this taxiway, which is a terrible idea, but it's the only option they've got if they're going to get out of there, you know. Um, so there's some, there's some stories there about that scene for you. Okay, listen, you're someone who edited more countdown sequences than anyone I can think of, really. So my question is, how do you keep those unique? So, you know, does it evolve like a conversation with the director? What do you do to make it feel fresh yet once again? The first question is, how long is the timer? Um, because the audience, depending on how far through the movie you are, the audience needs a kind of mental map of how long this sequence is going to play out. I always have a special la video layer on the timeline of just the countdown. So I can see in reality, how far is it between each cutaway to a clock and the reality of that. And I remember the 15 minute countdown in Fallout is like actually 22 minutes of screen time. But you've got a lot of parallel stories that you're telling. And so the interesting thing is that McHugh said to me once, he said that we, we've got to try putting 20 minutes on there because 
15 minutes is just a barefaced lie. And at least 20 minutes is close enough to 22 minutes that people won't mind. But I said to him, look, I strongly suspect that if the audience hears there's a 20 minute timer, they're just going to be going, oh, 20 minutes more of this film. Oh, come on. You know, how, how, how much more have we got to go? But I said, I'm going to do it. We have to do it because we try every single idea. Any idea that someone says, we always try it because you never know. So I went through and I redid all the timers, all the little inserts on the timer, everything on the bomb, Benji's, you know, Walker's detonator, everything. I redid all the timers so that they were counting down from 20 minutes. And sure enough, at our next test screening, people went, oh, my word, 20 minutes is ages. It felt so long. And so we put it back to 15 minutes, didn't change the edit, just changed the amount of time on the timer. And all the notes went away about how long it was. 15 minutes was a perfectly acceptable amount of time for the audience to think, okay, I've got 15 minutes before the movie's going to end, you know, before. And obviously in Mission Impossible, they only save the day with one second to go. You know, they know they're not going to stop it with 10 minutes to go. It's a question of parsing out the time so it doesn't feel like you're cheating even though you always are cheating and in fact even in the uh the fallout counter i remember if you count down the last 10 seconds before they cut the wires it's actually 11 seconds because i wanted to make it feel like they had missed the wire so if you actually watch the movie and when they do the countdown you'll see that there's actually one extra second that i added because it in your the audience's mind it feels like they failed I cheated the amount of time, so it wasn't exactly right. And the other thing is that you need plenty of cutaways of the timer that are not the same shot each time. You need to have lots of different angles, high angles, low angles, close angles, push-ins, pull-outs, all that stuff so that you, you have enough variety and all that coverage. And the same, the usual question about action sequences is understanding the stakes when you go in, caring about the characters, understanding what happens if they succeed, what happens if they fail, um, rooting for them to make it. And, you know, the more you care about the characters, the more, le the more you lean into the, to the action that's happening. And it's very important that you understand all of that ideally before the sequence happens so that you're not spending time explaining the rules of the sequence while it's underway. You know, we do these, uh, sequences in mission called what if, which is what's supposed to happen in the scene. And so that when it all goes wrong, you already know that the plan's uh, gone off the tracks and that they're going to have to figure out another way of solving the problem you know in in Kashmir in fallout it was the scene when they're racing towards the medical camp in the Land Rover and Benji's explaining about you know we've got the detonator we have to take the key out but we have to let the countdown start and then to to reinforce that you know Ilsa says so you're telling me that we can't detonate the bomb until after the countdown starts. You know, something where she just underlines it and then she looks over at Ethan and Ethan just gives her a look and then she goes, okay, and then you cut. And so the audience knows that it's not going to end well, this whole thing. Like they have to kind of get the bomb going before they can disarm it, you know, so it's, it's going to be a challenging one. And the other thing to say about Mission Impossible, of course, is some people say to me, you know, how, how do you do it all on your own editing the movie? Because they're very complex movies and I couldn't do them on my own. But I have another brilliant storyteller next to me, Chris McQuarrie, who really understands the power of editing. He can't physically edit and he doesn't want to worry about 160 terabytes of media and, you know, endless selects rolls and line strings and all the stuff that I have done to prep.
but he really works on the sequences with me and evolves the film constantly day after day after day for weeks and weeks and months and months and we're re- we're discovering what the movie is telling us constantly you know we're discovering things that are working and things that aren't working and we're discovering how the characters are behaving and what how the audience is responding to this and you know we're we're evolving the edit constantly and the same goes for a sequence with a countdown you know we never get it right first time we always end up refining it endlessly like the opera scene in rogue nation is a kind of countdown because it has music so you're you're building to the climax of the music and you know that the the assassin's going to pull the trigger or you know ilsa's going to pull the trigger on that note and we're setting it up in the audience's mind and then you see ethan having to make the decision to shoot the chancellor in the shoulder and um it, it it never works first time it's it's always months and months and months and months of refinement endless refinement we go over that sometimes we'll go over the scene 50 times in one day you know we'll just be watching it endlessly to try and feel the rhythms and the cross cuts and the can we do this can we move this can we try this can we do this better always trying to compress the maximum amount of story and the minimum amount of screen time you know which is the editor's job absolutely Listen, can you think about any techniques that are specific to you? Maybe, I don't know, maybe your assistant editors have pointed out that, that, you know, I got this from you. So is there something like that, something unique in the way you like to work, your technique, your workflow? I don't know, really. I'm very thorough, like everybody. So when I break sequences down, I'm very, very thorough with um, pulling out all the best shots for a certain thing and stacking, lining them all up and putting them on different video layers. And then I use a subcap from the subcap tool to label it. So, you know, I'll look at all the beats for this part of the scene and all the beats for that part of the scene. So I, I've, and then I use colored markers. So I'll put a single green marker above a clip that I think is great. And then two green markers, if it's definitely going in the movie but that means that when i go back to look at the selects role like a year later or two years later i can call up the the sequence and i can skim down and look because i've got everything labeled i look at what everything is and i can remind myself oh i thought that bit was good i thought that bit was good i thought that bit was good you know if you're doing a final skim through everything to make sure that you haven't left anything out I work in 5.1 from the word go. I spend a lot of time on dialogue editing. Like I really clean up the dialogue. So it's at a very, very polished level. I have my room calibrated to the correct, you know, it's calibrated to 82 dB across the board, which is a little lower than 85, which is what a a theatrical mix is done at. But I, I can, I start mixing the sound so that it's at a theatrical level straight away. So that if I was to take my timeline and play it in a cinema, it would just sound perfect. It's Dolby 7. And that's just something, a habit that I've got into. But I've done so much sound mixing now over the years that I can zero in on it very quickly. But yeah, spending a lot of time dialogue editing. You know, we quite often swap out lines of dialogue for another take. If the lips, if the lips still match, we'll chop out two or three syllables and replace them with a slightly different intonation from another take. Uh, but I always leave the original one underneath on on A4, just muted so that the sound designer has a reference of the original take. So they never have to dig through and find it. It's always there on my timeline. I, I split. I'm very meticulous about having, you know, six dialogue tracks, four mono effects tracks, four stereo effects tracks, two 5.1 effects tracks, and then three stereo background tracks and one 5.1 background, three stereo musics, which I upmix to 5.1 using a 
a plug-in on the Media Composer timeline. So the the music I'm always up mixing to 5.1 regardless. I'm very, very careful about using, you know, multiple video tracks, multiple audio tracks, labeling everything in the timeline so it's really easy to find so people can see what I'm doing. Having different tracks for, uh, you know, visual effects shot numbers and visual effects version zeros. I have all the versions of each shot uh, collapsed down into a track. I check every visual effect shot that goes in the movie. I never rely on the VFX editor just to cut it straight in. They always cut it in on a layer above, which has got my initials on. And then every morning I spend half an hour going through all the new VFX shots that have come in overnight and dropping them down into the movie or giving notes. Um, so I'm extremely thorough with that stuff. You know, one of the things I do is on Mission Impossible, for example, we work on the sequences almost totally silent. As I said, you know, all the action sequences are silent. I won't really use music or sound effects. We just imagine them as we're going. Chris McQuarrie and I really like, enjoy working like that. And we will turn the scenes over to the sound designers and they will start layering in sounds for us and sending back 5-1 stems or sometimes just... um mono tracks or stereos, whatever's whatever's necessary. Because then we start to build up a very detailed soundtrack, which we then carry through and evolve to every screening. And then when we get to our first temp mix, they'll give me 5.1 dialogues, background, dialogue crowd, Foley, backgrounds, effects, and music. So all those 5.1 stems get loaded into the media composer and I mute everything else, all the production tracks and all the sound design that we've done, whatever. And then as we cut, as we recut, I keep all those five one tracks active so that I'm always working with whatever the most recent temp mix was. And then those tracks, then the timeline, the shredded timeline gets sent back to the sound team and they can conform their tracks. But it's quite easy because they can take any of the edits that I've done and, and the software that will conform the stuff really quickly. So I'm always using the most up-to-date mix. And if I need to swap out a line of dialogue, I put a couple of keyframes and I, and I just turn down the, you know, the, the dialogue premix and mix back in um, some of the original production. And then I treat it so it's completely seamless. But that means that we always have a really great sounding movie on the timeline. And in a way, average sound is worse than no sound sometimes. You know, sound has to be really quite good for it to sound like a movie, which is why when we're working on Top Gun or on Mission Impossible, we get the sound team involved quite early and they start turning stuff around. Even though the scenes are very long, they'll start working on them so that we've got stuff to to start you know, evolving in the media composer timeline. I mean, I do line strings, but everyone does those now, which is where every line of dialogue is is cut together so I can compare all the different line readings. And I put, you know, all the wide shots on V1 and all the mediums on V2. The other thing I do, which is quite interesting, is I use clip colors now for each character. So I'll color the subclips depending on who is whose coverage we're looking at. So when I am looking at a sequence, I can see how much of each character is present in the scene and how much time we're on them and how much time we're hearing them talk, which I've never actually done. I did it on Top Gun just for the aerial sequences, but on Dead Reckoning Part 1, I just leaned into it and did it for every scene. So Ethan is always blue and Benji is always yellow and Luther is always red, you know, things like that. So I can always see how much of each character is present in each scene, which actually is really useful 
um, when you're editing to know that, you know, you've got enough cutaways to all the characters. If you're working with, you know, a scene, a dialogue scene with lots of characters. And there are two big ones in Mission Impossible. There's one in the Department of National Intelligence. It's like a 10 minute dialogue scene. And then there's one in the nightclub in Venice, which is, again, a very long dialogue scene. And we're constantly dancing between all the different characters to keep their stories alive and to keep their thoughts alive in the audience's mind. So having the clip colors, the subclip colors is really useful for that. Walter Merch talks about this concept of what you loved doing when you were like 10 years old is what you should pursue in your life. And I think it very much applies to you because you knew that you loved films when you were like eight. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. When I was eight, I was I became obsessed with movies. Yeah. You're not really like convincing people to go to film school if they really know that like film editing is what they want to pursue, right? So my question is, what do you think are particular skills or like, you know, experiences aspiring film editors should focus on developing? That's a very good question. Um, wow. Okay. Are you talking about at any stage of life or just when they're youngsters? I guess when they're still aspiring editors, so, but not necessarily youngsters. I think it's important to watch a lot of movies and a, a wide variety of movies. I think if, if you do go to film school, that is one thing which may, you may get exposed to a greater extent of styles of storytelling than if you are completely self-taught like I am, because I didn't watch a lot of Italian neorealist cinema and I've, I've built up a better understanding of the history of cinema over the last like 30 years. But I, if I had gone to film school, I would have been exposed to a lot of that much earlier. And also I think because I am self-taught and a lot of editors out there are self-taught because up until maybe six or seven years ago, there, there wasn't really anywhere that you could go online and learn about editing and have access to footage to edit, you know, raw material. You had to kind of either generate it yourself or wait until you had apprenticed enough to be given a job to do. You know, I did a lot of sport television um, and then I, I, I did a very low budget movie, but I really didn't know what I was doing. And I was 25, 24, 25 and I was editing this movie and I'd seen a lot of movies in my life, but, and, and I, I had an idea about how to cut things together, but I didn't really understand about point of view and story structure and composition and transitions, all that stuff, which, which comes with experience, but I probably would have learned at film school. Honestly, I think if you're an aspiring editor now, watch every video on this channel um, listen to a great podcast called um, Once Upon a Timeline. I love that uh, podcast. There's uh, terrific resources on YouTube of, of how to edit to give you an idea. Oh, any software you want to learn, you can learn almost for free now. Um, if you're a student, you can get Avid Media Composer for free. Uh, obviously, DaVinci Resolve is free. So there's a lot of resources out there that you can use for very little money. If you, ha if you have a laptop and a phone, you're kind of good to go. I think the most important thing is practice and editing as often as you can with whatever you have. Download some raw footage and try and edit something. But really, there's a theory about 10,000 hours, which is not news to anybody, but 
that means that you have to spend about four years doing something, maybe 10 hours a day for 255, 250 days a year. If you do that for four years, then, then you'll be good to go. In 2009, you edited a short film, right? Gone Fishing, which won like a few festivals. Oh, yes. I won like 30 or 40 festivals. Yeah. Yeah. It did really well, that, that short film. Yeah. You actually did something that I think was quite new in 2009. You did, I think you did like a vlog video uh, based on one festival experience, right? That's true. You've seen that. Yeah, yeah, I did. That's right. And thinking that like these days, a lot of young people actually like, you know, start filmmaking from vlogging. I'm not sure if it's even a question, but do you think vlogging is like a valid option to like, you know, put your foot in the door and to learn the craft? I, I, a hundred percent. Yes. I think even having a YouTube channel and making very basic videos on YouTube is essential. I mean, any skills like that, I'm fully in favor of if you can finish something, right, and put it online for people to watch, you're already well ahead of everyone else who's just dreaming of doing it. The main issue is to finish, right? Don't give up and go, oh, this is too hard. Oh, this isn't for me. You know, force yourself to get to the end, take a break, keep refining what you're doing, listen to the music, listen to how the sound is mixed, look at the color and and put it online for people to watch and react to. Um, that is essential. You learn so much from the process of forcing yourself to get to the end of it and not kind of compromise and give up. If you read Robert Rodriguez's book, Rebel Without a Crew, he talks about that. You know, you you get that sense of just unbridled passion and enthusiasm and forcing himself to learn how to track lay and how to edit and how to sync up on 16 mil because he had no option. That's what he had to do. So it, you know, it is, it's very healthy to be just have to confront it and learn it and figure it out yourself. Okay. And the question about AI, uh, I know maybe it's boring at this point, but I'd love to hear your opinion about where it's going and, you know, how can it be helpful? How can it benefit editors? Or maybe we should be afraid and, you know, uh, think about uh, B plan, so to speak. I think if we could work out a way to do line strings with AI, my assistants would be very happy. <laughs> Because that, that in theory could be entirely possible now. Script sync almost does it, but it would be a way of, of using AI to listen to the dialogue in a scene and chop up all the lines and then create a line string so that we can analyze. That would be very cool indeed. Um, cause it's extremely time consuming to do that manually. Although it pays rich dividends when you're going through 70 takes trying to find one line, one line delivery. If you've got them all stacked up, you can just press play. And in two minutes, you've heard all 70 takes of the line delivery. So you can just pick the ones that you want. You know, I think there's definitely something to be said about text-based editing for documentaries. If you've been through some kind of transcript and, and done a paper edit to, to have that kind of happen automatically is very cool, which I know, um, Premier's kind of jumping on board that already you know, automatic color correction, which again exists to a certain extent, but it still relies on quite a lot of manual help. But a way of kind of getting the computer to do a first pass of color correction would be very useful. I think like automatic rotoscoping, it's not there yet, right? It's still not like you can't get it to do hair and stuff, you know? So, so eventually that will get done. I, I'm not sure that AI will be able to completely replace editors and assistant editors for quite a while because there is so much creativity involved. And a large language model 
AI just knows about everything that's gone before. It can't innovate, really, truly. It bases everything on what's come before. So it'll always be a bit vanilla. You know, I, I honestly think it requires human creativity to, to, to push into the future of creativity and, and ways of storytelling, you know, and, um, ways of, of using music differently. You know, Ludwig Goranson, you know, he's the guy, you know, when you, when you hear what he did for the Mandalorian, I can't imagine that an AI would ever have come up with that if it had just been fed all the Star Wars scores up to that point. You know, the stuff that Lorne is doing for Mission Impossible and, and that Hans Zimmer does, you know, the, the Dune scores, they, they are just extraordinary in terms of, in terms of fresh creativity. I mean, listen, the technology is quite clearly, it's only, you know, a few years old. So in 10 years, we'll all be saying something very different, I'm sure, you know, but, uh, let's, let's see what happens. Thanks, Eddie. My pleasure, guys.